Good morning. I'm going to start with a quick introduction, even though Ben just did one, because I'm a really nosy and curious person who likes to know just a little bit about the person I'm being asked to listen to. So um, also, I don't want my confusing accent to distract you for the rest of the morning. Um, I'm an in I was an international school kid. I'm Chinese and Welsh. I grew up in Hong Kong like Ben, but I didn't get to meet the Chasers until just a couple of years ago. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong. I've lived in Australia, England, and now I'm here. The accent changes according to who I'm speaking to. So in a room as beautifully diverse as this, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's find out. Actually, my, my, daughter, my daughter sounds a lot more English. She's more pure in her accent. And she had to give a speech, a one-minute speech in her class to a new teacher. And two seconds in, the teacher stopped her and goes, is that how you really talk? Or are you just doing an accent for the speech? <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So this is how I really talk. I'm, yeah, it is. Um, OK, I'm so happy to talk to you today about our current series, What is the Church For? It's a huge question. Fortunately, when I was asked to speak on this, I was also given the answer that um, I'm to speak on as well. So don't worry. But this isn't the first huge question I've ever had to deal with. I'll tell you a little story. Back in 2001, I was sitting in the back of a taxi, sandwiched between my then fiancé, Tom, and his little brother, Ed. We were on the way to the airport to return home after having attended a massive church conference. I was, my thoughts were all over the place. The taxi driver was this lovely, friendly Muslim gentleman who was really keen to chat to us about all things faith and religion. We went round all the regular issues and talked about this and that. And finally, he said to us, okay, guys, we're nearly at the airport. Before we part ways, let me ask you this one last question. What, Christians, is the meaning of life? I sat there quietly, trying to look contemplative, scrambling madly in my head for the, the best, most impressive, watertight answer to this question. Luckily, it was Ed who piped up. He goes, I got this, guys. The meaning of life is to worship God. Yes. It was the right answer. The taxi driver said, yes, that is the right answer. And we all sat in the back of the taxi, nodding knowingly until the end of the ride. I had been so distracted that week, but luckily Ed had been listening and he caught the fact that someone in one of the sessions he attended had said that exact line, the purpose of life, the meaning of life is to worship God. It's a huge existential question. And since then, that many years ago, I've spent a lot of my time thinking over that question. And today, these two big questions converge. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? And what is the church for? Why are we here? Could it be that the answer is the same? To worship God. What is worship, though? The dictionary, the dictionary definition is never going to get us very far, but it's an acceptable place to start. So here it is. According to Google, worship is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. If I'm honest, when I think of worship still now, I often think of um, that. <laughs> Some of you will get that. What is it, though? What does it look like? Who does it? And most importantly, can I opt out? 
author David Foster Wallace was one of the most creative and brilliant minds in recent times, sadly no longer with us. But he puts it really, really well in this little excerpt, excerpt from a speech he gave in 2005. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without being ever fully aware that that is what you're doing. So, a Christian, then, is someone who has made the conscious decision to worship Jesus. Does saying that I worship Jesus mean that I worship Jesus? Another question here. This is a somewhat, in my opinion, cocky question that was made popular by Billy Graham. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? My pastor growing up used to put it this way. If you want to know what I worship, ask my calendar and my bank statements. They will tell you. Here at Vintage, we like to talk about worshiping God with our time, our talent, and our treasure. I like this one because it allows for a lot of personalization. The way I worship God might not look exactly like the way you worship God. And there's going to be more on this coming later. What I do know more and more every year that goes by is that my decision to consciously worship Jesus was the beginning of the most wonderful adventure. Now last year, uh, last year, last week we heard from Ben about Jesus Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Why did he come? He came to us. Why? He came to give us life and to give us life to the full, abundant life. Jesus came. God is here. Where? In the church? Before we receive today's Bible reading, I'd like to invite you to receive it as a call to worship. The whole book is a call to worship, but... Let's pay special attention today to the locality of God's presence. This is a passage from Chronicles that is actually a psalm penned by David on the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the city of God. The Ark of the Covenant is the place where God's presence dwells, and it's being brought into the midst of the people. Could you imagine if you were one of those people? I could just imagine us being a bit like, now, now what? 
<laughs> you know? So let's hear this passage and also remember that it's Old Testament, it's Old Covenant, it's the Old Promise where God's presence dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. We are now living under the new promise, the new covenant, which means God's presence dwells in us. God's presence is here. Now what? I'll be reading from 1 Chronicles 16, 23 to 29. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all of the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And now verses 35 and 36. Cry out, save us, God our, Father, our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory to your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The psalm is <clears throat> much longer than that. That was an excerpt. And I've pulled out for us a few of the verbs to consider, the action words. Sing, declare, look, remember, ascribe, bring, tremble, let, give. There is so much to unpack in that response, David's response to God's presence among us. And I highly encourage you to spend as much of your life unpacking it as you possibly can, but there's just two ideas that I'd like to bring to our attention this morning. And the first is this. We are called to worship God on the most personal, intimate, deep level that there is. And two, we're called to worship together. One without the other means we're missing out. One without the other might even cause problems. It certainly did for me, and I will tell you that story later. But first, let's talk about singing. Singing is just one element of a worship service, but we like to do it a lot. So it's important that we talk about it, think about it, ask questions, explore it from all angles. Throughout history, people have rallied in songs of protest, in songs of battle, mourning, celebration. In the Bible, we see it often in conjunction with breakthrough. On a psychosocial level, it's been found that community singing, communal art, is highly healing, therapeutic, and beneficial for people, especially in recovery, especially from trauma. There's something powerful but hard to put into concrete words about what happens when people come together to create. Singing together is individuals coming together to form a whole that's bigger than themselves. It puts us into a healthy perspective, even on a very human level. But when believers come together to confess their faith in song, something supernatural takes place. I think choirs are such a beautiful 
metaphor for the church. Lots of individuals with their own sound, their own tone, their own pitch, their own levels of ability come together. It's like the different body parts having different functions forming one body. And we sing together, we make a sound and bring harmonies that can't be made alone. But wait, do you have to be gifted or even a halfway decent singer to worship God in song in church? We know this, right? But I love hummingbirds. I didn't grow up around them. And um, they've been this near mythical creature in my mind. And when we moved here to California, I was so excited to find out that they're actually just quite an everyday normal part of life here. What I was also quite surprised to find out was that they actually don't have a very pleasant song. They're quite screechy. Does anyone know? Has anyone heard them? Keep, keep an ear out for them. They're very cute and not very pretty to hear. But I think God likes to hear them sing. I think he gave them a song. We don't sing because we're overly gifted, some of us. We don't even always sing because we want to or because we feel like it. Sometimes it's a conscious decision. There have been many times in my own life where I've been in pain or I've been so mentally low that it was all I could do to drag myself to church and just assume the position. And in those days, and they still come, it's just the signature move is like, forget it, God, I give up. I surrender. Or it's like, I'm holding on by a thread. Those are my moves on those days. It's all I can do, but I think it's enough. When I do that, it lifts my gaze off myself. My attention goes to my higher power. <clears throat> and I get out of my own head and off myself. But to do that, there has to also be a self. There has to be a me in order for me to ascribe that worship to God. When we sing regularly together, there's a consistent opportunity to reorient our priorities. But sometimes we do feel like it. Bursting into song for joy is one of the most natural things we do as humans. When Tom and I had our first child, Layla, we were very lucky and privileged to get to experience the euphoria that some new parents get to feel. And we would find ourselves singing over her a lot. Tom would sing, isn't she lovely? And could you be the most beautiful girl in the world? It was really sweet. And I was weirdly heavily inclined toward Aerosmith's um, I don't want to close my eyes, but it was really deep and like angsty. And so he would sound good and it would be very easy on the ears and I would be really dramatic and quite embarrassing. We, um, we try not to do it too often because said baby is now 13 and we know better than to be that cringy. We, we try not to do it most of the time. But... Um, Singing isn't good and it's natural, but is it all a baby needs? If all Tom and I ever did for Layla was sing to her, not only would it be weird, it would be wrong. It would be downright irresponsible and negligent, and she probably wouldn't have survived this long. A baby requires more than a song, and so does God. Sometimes the church can get some things horrendously wrong. And I think what we've done with the word worship 
by assigning it to this industry and this business machine and elevated fellow believers to positions of celebrity, creating all sorts of metaphorical monsters and then being upset that we are in the midst of monsters. I think this is one of the things that we might have gotten wrong in some ways. That's not worship. That's something else, and sometimes it's fine. But it's not worship. It's not the essence of worship. Singing alone is not worship in its full picture. God requires more than songs. What does God require? Micah 6.8 will tell us. He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How about singing, though? Let's look at Amos 5. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. So what might justice mean? That's a really big question again, and it needs a series of its own. So we'll ask a smaller one. What might justice mean for us here today? If any of you were here back um, several months ago when John spoke about righteousness and had the beach ball, I think that's what we're talking about here. It's a putting right in a fallen world. To do justice is to worship God. It's to do right by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. It's to do right by the unique design God used when he created you. To do right by your talents, your interests, your strengths, your struggles, your quirks. The unique way that God wired your brain and your body. To do justice is to do right and engage fully with the cards that you've been dealt. And to know that when you do that, you connect on the most intimate possible level with the God who created you and knows you inside out. And when we do that, we live life in abundance And there's a ripple effect that the people around us cannot miss. We're all made up of various elements. But when we come together in worship, those elements get reordered and rearranged. And we ascribe the very top place to God. Everything else falls into its more right place. It's supernatural. Glenn Packham says there's a wildness to worship that cannot be tamed. And I think there's this mystery that we can only engage with in faith. We don't always understand it. Growing up, I used to be a dancer. I um, became a Christian as a teenager, and I was encouraged by the aunties in the church to worship God through dance. There was the occasion of ribbons, banners, and flags. I was very much a teenager at odds within myself because I could sense there was something good, but I was also like, this is very not cool. And I couldn't quite wrap my head around what the point of it all was. I didn't get it at all, and I was, I was really conflicted. I couldn't see how this expression that came very naturally to me fit anywhere in the bigger picture of church. And although I kind of felt like God liked it, I eventually gave up because I just didn't see the point. Many years later, I started to educate myself and learned about sensory health. Um, Sensory health is really important, and I'd encourage you all to learn about it if you don't know. But I had this little revelation, and it was a personal thing, that maybe, just maybe, God wasn't asking me to become the most glorious dancer that would bring glory to his name. 
He was asking me to dance because it was good for me. Dancing was calming to me. It regulated my brain. I have a neurodivergent brain, and it is incredibly calming and soothing. And when I get the balance of movement right, I am able to thrive in all the other areas of my life. It was never about the dance. I just didn't understand it at the time. We don't always have to understand things. Maya Angelou said, a bird doesn't sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. You have a song. God gave you one. So whatever it is God put in your heart or your hands or your mind to do, do it for him and try not to get stuck on the why like I did. I lost years there. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work at it with your heart, all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters, and delight in doing it for him. So what does this mean for you? What is she talking about? Is she talking about dance, <laughs> ballet, art, creativity? Yes and no. I happen to believe that we're all creative because I think we've all been created in the image of God, who is creative, but some of us are more accepting of it consciously than others. That's another conversation. I think maybe let's think of it as art is a response to life and worship is a response to the life that God's given us. Sometimes that might mean cleaning the toilet. Wait, can God use me to change the world by my holy toilet cleaning? I don't know. <laughs> That's the answer to that. I don't know. It's not about the results, the outcome, saying ta-da after we've done anything. It's about the posture. The words of Martin Luther, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I'd add that I think he's probably interested in seeing his creation do what he made them to do. We can engage God in anything, in our private worship, anything we have, can be turned into worship if we engage it with a posture of worship. And I think that's what makes for an abundant life. It's not always glamorous. It won't always happen on a platform or even in this building. Sometimes it does mean cleaning toilets. Sometimes it means caring for loved ones or looking after our physical and mental health in really mundane ways. Sometimes it's disciplining yourself in response to the privilege of education or practicing your craft, or doing things with the right attitude. But is this starting to sound a bit like works and really heavy? Am I over-spiritualizing everything? Sometimes we can just pour a cup of coffee and it's just pouring a cup of coffee. No need to turn it into a big thing, right? This isn't about making everything heavy and weighty. It's about making it light and more beautiful. Tom found this cool comic strip. I will also read it to us in case um, you can't see it. Panel one. Who's your favorite Christian singer, Jesus? Panel two. One of my favorites is a woman from Thailand. She sings her heart out all day while farming. Panel three. Oh, so no one anyone's ever heard of? Panel four. She won't be touring the church circuit anytime soon, Carl, but she's pretty famous from where I come, where I come from. Glenn Packham again, um, he puts a twist on the line usually attributed to St. Francis of Assisi about evangelism. 
Lead worship always. Use music if necessary. Because when two or more people, people who are engaging in that abundant life, gather in God's presence and sing together, his presence is strong and powerful and it cannot be tamed. True worship does extend beyond these four walls, but can also be absolutely glorious within it. It's both and. So what if you don't know what you were made to do? That's okay. I certainly didn't. The reason I was distracted in the taxi back at the beginning of what I was saying was that the conference, it was lights, camera, action, production, value, fashion, energy, bells and whistles that left me bamboozled. I was completely like, I didn't know how to compute what had happened. I don't think anybody there meant any harm. But because of the way my brain is wired, and because of the fact that the messages were reinforced repeatedly over the course of years, I came away with the wrong message and I held on to it for years. The message I felt I was receiving from this big platform was, look at us. Look at how marvelously and excellently we worship God. You should like and subscribe. And I did. I looked at them, and I looked at me, and I didn't see a match. I didn't see a space for a contribution by me. And so somewhere in my heart of hearts, a little voice said, out with the dance, out with the art, out with all things you, and in with all things platform worship. You should learn the acoustic guitar. You need to cut your hair, change your fashion, get some better signature moves. <laughs> it's a joke, and I'm joking, but it's a really hard-earned joke. <laughs> but you don't need to worry about me. I'm living my best life now. <laughs> the, um, the message of a worshiper should never be, look at me. Look at me. Worship like me. It should be, look at him. Worship like you. That's what we need to do. And when we do this, we are res doing we're being responsible, doing justice to the innate expressions that God put inside of us, each one of us. They're all a little bit different. And what we also need to do is try our very, very best, never, ever, ever to devalue what is innate in a fellow worshiper. When we worship as our true selves, we're saying to God, amen. We always get to say amen, let it be, yes, so be it. Let your plans be. And this all takes a lot of trial and error. The church is a really safe place to work out a lot of this stuff. And so I'm about to finish. But I first want to address a couple of different groups of people in this room. And the first one is anyone here who might be feeling a little bit frustrated or wobbly because you thought you knew what God was asking you to do. You, thought, you think you know what God made you to do, but it's not working out as you expected it to. Did you hear wrong? Nobody can possibly know this. This is between you and God. And I have a lot of faith this morning that if you ask him, he will guide you and he'll show you. It's about small faithful steps. I like the words of the tennis player, Arthur Ashe. Start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. Because promotion comes from God, not from man. 
And then there's somebody here who maybe devalued your screechy hummingbird voice. I'm not saying you actually sound like a hummingbird. I'm saying that um, maybe you've looked around church and gone, I can't see an opening for me. I don't see where my contribution would fit. I feel that God's word to you is that there is a U-shaped hole in this world somewhere for you to bring the, 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 the you that God created and designed you to be. Um, and whether or not it happens within these four walls doesn't matter because when we come in here, we sing and we make a big noise and it's great anyway. But there is a place for your contribution somewhere. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're in a lot of pain and it's all you can do to just drag yourself into the room and assume the position. We are so glad that you're here. So glad. Because we live in this fallen world and sometimes we choose to worship in spite of our circumstances. And as we worship God, we do justice to the cards we've been dealt and we say to God, let your kingdom come in each of our lives and in the life of this church collectively. Because God is here. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? Let's look at those action words again. God is here. Sing, declare, look, remember, ascribe, bring, tremble, give, cry out, praise, and all the people say, Amen. Amen.